plates ready? This is Food School, Smarter, Stronger, Leaner podcast. Want to feel amazing? Love the way you look in the mirror and perform your absolute best in the gym, at work, and in bed? Well, in life, you're definitely in the right place. Food, it's you. It builds every single cell of you. And if there is one thing every human being must master, it's food. Because at the very least, eating, you do it every day, several times a day, every single day. You might as well get good at it. I'm your host, Angela Sharina from Create Yourself Dead Today, your personal nutritionist and plate watcher, your diet guide and explorer, your fat loss coach and food inspector, and just someone with a lot, a lot of passion and obsession and curiosity for healthy food, healthy diets, nutrition, optimized human performance, everything and absolutely anything you put in your grocery shopping cart, your fridge, on your plate, and in your mouth. It's my business. Food School, on a mission to help you eat better daily. It's the last time I talk about food. It's the last time I talk about food. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Food School Smarter, Stronger, Leaner podcast. Today, I'm very excited to share with you our super interesting conversation with Dr. James DiNicola Antonio, cardiovascular researcher and a scientist and a super amazing book author whose books I've read. I have them on my Kindle and I go back and check some data there all the time. The books are The Salt Fix, Why the Expert Got It All Wrong, and How Eating More Might Save Your Life. Super Fuel, Ketogenic Keys to Unlock the Secrets of Good Fats, Bad Fats, and Great Health. And of course, the recent one that we're going to be talking more about on this podcast, The Longevity Solution, Rediscovering Centuries-Old Secrets to a Healthy, Long Life. Uh, I loved all of the books and recommend them to you. Uh, These books changed the way I think about um, certain food eating practices like eating salt or eating certain fats for health. Um, These books change the way I eat my um, healthy eating behaviors. So on this podcast in particular, you will learn more about why you might reconsider your carnivore or vegan or other restrictive diets uh, if you're interested in the longest life, or why you might consider adding this weird quote-unquote uh, food supplement spirulina to your diet and how best to do it for longevity and for more health and energy in your life. Um, uh, you might also reconsider or consider again adding beans to your diet, even if you are on a low-carb diet um, because of there um, seems to be um, longevity promoting properties. You will hear um, about different, the best source uh, of magnesium, this super important electrolyte or mineral that is involved in energy production and DNA replication, replication super important processes uh, for longevity. Uh, the best source for magnesium might be in your drinks. Uh, make sure you learn uh, what you should be drinking to get uh, the best magnesium. Uh, we will also talk about why saturated fats 
are still not probably not the best idea for your diet and you might reconsider the amount and especially the source of your saturated fats if you're interested in living the healthiest and longest life. Also, we'll talk about why you might really be careful about choosing your meats uh, that might be a lifesaver for you. We go deep in science and get really practical. So stay tuned and start working on your longevity today. Because guess what, guys? Nobody's getting any younger. So enjoy. um, Dear listeners of Food School Podcast, I'm very excited today because... James D. Dr. James D. Nicolantonio is joining us for this conversation about longevity, lifestyle, and longevity nutrition, and uh, he's gonna give us a lot of useful advice that we can all start using today to start looking better, feeling better, and hopefully living much longer. So, thank you, James, for joining us today. Uh, and. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, uh, the work that you're passionate about? Uh, uh, what is what is it that you are most fascinated about these days? Yeah. Well, so I've been, you know, I'm a cardiovascular research scientist at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. I'm also a doctor of pharmacy. And uh, as you know, I've written three books, The Salt Fix, uh, Superfuel, which goes into which actually, you know, fats are healthy to consume on a ketogenic diet and which foods people should be consuming because a lot of people are doing the ketogenic diet wrong. So if if your listeners want to, you know, find a good book that actually, you know, does keto the right way, that Superfuel book, you know, I spent a few years researching for that and it has hundreds of references too. So I'm very proud of that book. But then the most recent book, The Longevity Solution with Jason Fung, and what I'm most fascinated and interested about is really the topic of longevity because um, it's something that's just starting to catch, kind of catch on. And there's now pretty good evidence of different, like, I hate to use the word hacks, but that's probably like the best quick term to say that there are quick things that people can do to improve their health and longevity. And so, really, what I've been researching. What I'm really focused on right now is the benefits of the literally the first food that ever existed on our planet, um, which is called spirulina. And it's basically, it's called a blue-green algae, but it's actually a bacteria. And humans have consumed the substance for literally thousands of years. Um, It's both like a freshwater and a saltwater algae slash bacteria. You know, it's funny, uh, like I looked at your Instagram today and I saw this post about spirulina and what I did, I went back into my kitchen and I made some celery juice and mixed it with spirulina and some blueberries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, yeah, (laughs) I love spirulina. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so basically, I mean, if you go, if anyone goes on PubMed and looks at spirulina, there are literally decades worth of clinical studies in humans where it shows clinical benefits in people with fatty liver disease, even looking, you know, doing ultrasounds of the liver, showing basically almost like a reversal of fatty liver disease um, with this substance, um, partly because it reduces 
um, inflammation and inflammatory cytokines that are produced from macrophages in the liver called Kupfer cells. But what's, what's really interesting about this substance is that it activates basically our own longevity pathway. So, you know, in a nutshell, one of the best ways to basically promote longevity is to, you know, go through something called hormesis, where you give yourself a little bit of like an external toxic dose of something, whether that be exercise, which damages the body, or whether it be a little bit of sunlight, or a little bit of moderate alcohol consumption, and particularly red wine, or consuming plants, which have phytonutrients that actually promote a little bit of inflammation, which produces this long-term benefit called hormesis. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I just think that that's how you... Um... That's how you based uh, a lot of things in your book, The Longevity Solution, uh, based on hormesis, right? The foods and substances that um, create, I guess, more of uh, this stress hormesis, this particular stress that uh, creates um, some positive health effects with mild stress, right? Exactly. So basically, what hormesis is, is by giving yourself not a toxic dose of some type of stress oxidative stress, you induce your own antioxidant response element, um, which basically, you know, activates something called heme oxygenase one. And this breaks down heme in your red blood cells into three substances. So it breaks it down into carbon monoxide, which at a low dose is actually anti-inflammatory. It breaks it down into um, iron, free iron molecules, which upregulates ferritin. And then it increases something called bilirubin, which is one of the body's most potent endogenous antioxidants. So in a way, you're using oxidative stress to promote your body's most important endogenous antioxidant, which is called bilirubin. And this connects with spirulina in a very intricate way. So bilirubin is actually elevated in a group of patients called Gilbert syndrome. It's But it's really not... I don't want, people thinking like it's a syndrome, like it's bad. Gilbert syndrome, these people actually have half the mortality than the general population. They also have a 30% lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, and they have a lower risk of cardiovascular events, coronary heart disease, almost any disease you can think of. People with Gilbert syndrome who have a moderately elevated level of bilirubin are much healthier. If you want to study longevity and you want to study a healthy group of people, it's Gilbert syndrome. And it basically comes down to bilirubin. If you inject bilirubin into animals, um, it has improvements in insulin sensitivity. So we know bilirubin is not only an important antioxidant, but we know giving it um, is important too. And it shows and shows benefits. But the problem is, is you can't give really bilirubin to humans because it's not soluble it um, doesn't get absorbed well, and, but there's something that you can take to mimic bilirubin, and that is spirulina. So myself and a few co-authors have been publishing on this topic now, and very few people know this, but the enzyme in the body that converts um, biliverdin to bilirubin, mm-hmm. um, biliverdin reductase, can actually act on the light harvester in spirulina. So there's this light harvester called phycocyanobilin 
in spirulina. It gives spirulina its blue color. And the body can convert phycocyanobilin to phycocyanorubin. And it's very structurally similar to bilirubin. And it's a bilirubin mimetic. It inhibits the enzyme that produces most of the oxidative stress in your body called NADPH oxidase, which is upregulated in almost all disease states. It's what produces superoxide anions is NADPH oxidase. And part of the benefit of hormesis is through increasing bilirubin and inactivating oxidative stress overall by inhibiting NADPH oxidase. But you can get the same benefits of hormesis by taking spirulina because our body converts it into a bilirubin mimetic. And so what what's really cool is like you're taking a food substance that has been around for 3.8 billion years and literally nearly all life form evolved eating the substance. So it would make sense that this substance could activate your body's own endogenous kind of antioxidant system. And so you can see this through the clinical studies in humans where spirulina lowers blood pressure, it reduces waist circumference, it you know it seems to reverse fatty liver disease. Um, improves insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, almost any surrogate marker that's been measured looking at spirulina is dramatically improved. And so it's not something I touch upon in the longevity solution, but it's something that I'm researching now and, and, and there's a lot of data. I'm super excited about it. Oh, cool. And uh, how do you recommend you, how do you recommend people to take it? Like how much of it, when is best time to take it? Yeah. So I, I personally can't give uh, recommendations, but what I do is I take six to seven grams of, I, I take Mercola's Spiru Blue, so it's spirulina plus an algae called H. pluvialis, which makes astaxanthin, so you're getting a dual benefit, but it's also mm -hmm. a tablet, so a lot of the spirulina powders are a little bit nauseating, and it's you want to get a clean source of spirulina, so there's spirulinas that are grown in clean waters and that are tested for heavy metals. Um, and I know Mercolis sells to California, so his products have to basically pass like Proposition 65 in California, which is highly regulated for you know heavy metals and other contaminants that um, you know California is very strict on. So that's why I take his Spiru Blue. Mm -hmm. I take about six to seven grams twice a day with meals. And the reason why is animal studies show that if you take spirulina with any type of harmful substance, pesticides refined carbs, sugar, vegetable oils, it reduces the damage from those as well, which is why I always take it with any type of food because when you cook food, you're going to create some damage and oxidation to the food itself or if you're eating out, you're going to probably get some type of vegetable oil in you. So that's why I always take it with food. Okay. Uh, does it matter uh, what time of the day you're taking it? Or you said you take it twice a day, right? So I assume it's like yeah. breakfast and dinner time? Exactly. Lunch. And so... So really the optimal dose if that if someone let's say has like disease states that seems you know based on evidence would be anywhere from actually 15 to 30 grams so like a half ounce to one ounce of the substance actually may be the optimal dose but since I don't have any type of like disease states I, mm -hmm. I take more of like a maintenance dose but I mean studies actually show benefits as low as two grams of spirulina per day but If you want to get more of the nutrition, what's what's cool about spirulina is for a let's call it a plant because it's considered a blue green algae, but it's really a bacteria. But mm -hmm. for for a let's say a plant source of protein, it has the highest basically bioavailability, even more so than soy or legumes. 
Um, and it doesn't have oxalates like spinach yeah. does, so its minerals are much more bioavailable than than most plants as well. Um, and gram for gram, it's the most nutritious food that I've ever seen. Um, so yeah. from that perspective as well, you're you're getting almost like vitamins, minerals. You're getting a lot of zeaxanthin as well, which is mm-hmm. important for eye health and chlorophyll. Chlorophyll seems to help, um, you know, reduce damage from UV radiation and things like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I looked at uh, the nutrition label and it said like somewhere 300 calories per 100 grams and then 57 grams of protein. Um, of course, the problem is for me personally is just eating it as much as, you know, to get that amount of uh, protein from it. Right. But, um, yeah, tablets probably better form to get it. Mm-hmm. In- so cool, spirulina. Uh, what about other substances and behaviors like fasting um, that uh, you talk about in the longevity solution that people can um, use and apply to get the same hormesis effect and um, prolong their life and health span? Yeah, so fasting seems to tap into um, biological mechanisms that occur when we're in the womb. So we're able to grow pancreatic beta cells through a transcription factor that's increased when we're a fetus called neurogenin-3. This transcription factor has been shown in animal studies, at least, to be upregulated during fasting. And animal studies have actually shown that when they fast the animal, the increase in neurogenin-3 actually causes a regeneration of beta cells. So fasting has been shown, at least in animal studies, to regenerate beta cells through this increase in neurogenin-3. Um, and there isn't any reason to suspect that this would not happen in humans as well. It's still preliminary, but there's definitely case reports of reversing diabetes, with particularly type 2 diabetes, with fasting. And this increase in neurogenin-3 and regeneration of beta cells may have something to do with that. Um, Walter Longo has done a lot of uh, publications in animals on regenerating the immune system, um, but not a lot has been talked about regenerating beta cells. Um, And so fasting seems to increase autophagy. Now, you can mimic this as well by exercise. The best way to actually increase autophagy is through like resistance training or lifting weights. It's, it's the quickest, most powerful way to induce autophagy, which is why people who exercise have consistently been shown to live longer, have a reduction in cardiovascular events, but it seems to really be driven through autophagy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like you're breaking down your old cells, which what autophagy is, to regenerate new ones. And so you can do that either by breaking down your own muscle through exercise, or you can do that by not eating where your body's tapping in and breaking down its own proteins to regenerate new healthy ones. Uh, You know, I often get questions from a lot of people um, about the kind of fasting, like whether they should be doing um, everyday intermittent fasting or maybe longer fast but less often like what's your take on that what kind of fast do you think promote the most autophagy yeah it's a good question i think it depends on what your goals are um you don't have to fast as much if you are lifting weights and building muscle because you're that almost i i consider a fast so if i let's say I exercise in the morning, I consider that I just skipped a meal. So basically, you know, if you're exercising two or three days a week, 
in essence, you're basically creating a fast for that day because you're activating insulin sensitivity for 48 hours in your muscles when you do, let's say, like a full body workout. It's, so it depends on the person. If you're starting, if you're very overweight and obese, that person may benefit more from a pro, more longer fast, like two or three days, um, versus someone who's lean. Someone who's lean may only want to do an 18-hour fast per day and eat one or two meals a day because they're, they don't need to really, really tap into fat-burning mechanisms because they're already a fat burner. So it's highly dependent on where you're starting from. It's highly dependent on how much animal protein you're consuming in a day versus plant protein because animal protein is more bioavailable and you're going to hit, you're going to activate mTOR quicker by consuming a higher animal protein diet. So you may need to fast longer or you may need to work out harder, a little bit harder if you're consuming a higher animal protein diet versus a plant protein diet. Um, so it's so nuanced. How I, go, how I personally approach it, if someone who's healthy, um, I think exercising two to three days a week is the goal. So I don't fast or really fast much. I might only do a 16 or 18-hour intermittent fast um, during those days mm-hmm. where I just don't eat breakfast. Um, you know, During days that I'm not working out per se, some mm-hmm. days that I do work out, I may eat two or three times per day. Um, but... I typically, some people do well on a 24-hour or 23-hour fast where they eat just one meal a day within one hour and they, they feel great doing that. I personally haven't been able to tailor a single meal, meal where I think it's going to hit optimal nutrient intake. So I generally eat two times a day, fasting 16 to 18 hours a day. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm with you on that. It- I like the idea of one meal a day, and I tried it for, I mean, for a few weeks actually. And but then, it's like I have to dedicate so much time to that one meal, and then kind of like resting after that because I need to consume more food in that one meal that I would otherwise if I divide it between several meals. So it was like a little bit too much food for one meal for me personally because I do exercise every day, and uh, yeah, so that's why I also prefer fasting for 16, 18 hours and have usually two meals a day. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I do. And, you know, it, what, what kind of gets lost in the discussion is, you know, because the term fasting or the term exercise is, is sexy and it's easy, people tend to just not really focus, though, on the quality of foods and matching certain foods to hit optimal nutrient intakes because that's a deeper discussion it's not as straightforward it's not a one sentence okay just fast or just exercise it's very more nuanced and so there's also this idea of hitting optimal nutrient intakes and optimal let's say carotenoid intakes and what foods should you be consuming per day and that doesn't get talked about enough and so kind of like the foods that I try to consume on a daily basis, one would be pastured eggs. Mm -hmm. One reason being that it's a very good source of choline, which is lacking in a lot of people's diets. It's a good source of healthy fats and protein that are bioavailable. Um, It's a good source of omega-3s. There's also uh, either sashimi or um, sushi or wild salmon, 
is a food group that I try to consume, um, you know, maybe, you know, once a week or including things like krill oil and fish oil because the long chain omega-3s are lacking in the diet and so is an important carotenoid called astaxanthin. Um, and vitamin D is lacking in most people's diets, so you can get vitamin D through, you know, things like, you know, wild salmon, um, which is an important food group. And B, I honestly believe that um, legumes are a healthy plant protein source for a lot of people. So many people are not getting enough potassium. And, you know, when you cook meat, you cook out the potassium. Um, so I try to consume either some form of high potassium food, whether it be an undercooked organic potato or very high in potassium potatoes or beans, um, because that's another high potassium food. And from an evolutionary perspective, we were consuming seven to eight grams of potassium. Um, and so it's very difficult to even get half that amount if you're not consuming either beans or potatoes, um, because you know, most foods aren't high in potassium. So beans and potatoes are some an undercooked potatoes are something I try to include. And it beans are probably one of the dietary staples that if you look at most longevity populations, they consume legumes in some form or another. And they are high in phytonutrients as well and antioxidants, particularly black beans. Um, so that's a food that I do try to incorporate. Mm-hmm. Um, because I am insulin sensitive too, and I work out, and I can get away with eating, you know, three ounces of beans per day. That might not be for everyone, um, but it's good resistant starch as well. So if you undercook a potato, it's very high in resistant starch, which feeds your good gut bacteria, which produces short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which increases GLP one and has all these other benefits as well. And you know, the the Okinawans mainly consumed you know, their purple potatoes. It was like 80% mm-hmm. of their caloric intake. Um, yeah, I so, also heard that if, if you cook your potatoes, then you cool your potatoes, then you increase the amount of resistance starch in that potatoes, but also rice, I believe. In. Yeah, so that's true. There's clinical studies in ileostomy patients where they have their, um, these people have had their colons removed, and you can literally measure how much fiber or resistant starch is coming out in their ileostomy that would have hit the colon if they actually didn't have their colon removed. Mm-hmm. And when you cook and cool a potato, um, those studies show that it quadruples the um, resistant starch. So if you're consuming four grams, you've now increased that to 12 grams of fiber. But most people are going to reheat that, um, which you still end up with about three times the amount of resistant starch. You're not going to really see that, though, on a glucometer because um, adding, let's say, um, you do cook and then cool your potato and you triple the fiber. So you go from, let's say, four grams of fiber. Um, now you have 12. Um, you know, you've only reduced the glucose amount um, by, you know what I mean? What is that? Nine grams. So your glucometer spike is still going to be the same. But if you were to measure the AUC of glucose, it's going to be lower. And if you were to measure the GLP-1 response and the benefits to the gut bacteria and your overall insulin sensitivity over weeks, that extra nine grams of fiber um, is going to show a benefit in ways that you can't measure on a glucometer. So people will say, oh, well, I test my blood sugar on a cooked and cooled potato and the spike is pretty much the same. Well, yeah, it's going to be pretty much the same. You've only lowered the glucose. Like if you're consuming just potatoes, and let's say you're consuming 100 grams of glucose, but in, if you cook and cool it, now you're only consuming 93 grams. 
yeah, you're not going to really see a reduction in blood glucose. But people eat cooked and cooled potatoes with other foods as well. So most people don't just consume it on its own. Um, so the spike in glucose is going to be lower when you're actually looking at a real full meal full of fats and proteins as well. But then there's benefits, like I said, that you can't measure on a glucometer with that increased amount of fiber. And I do personally believe that there is tremendous benefit increasing our resistant starch intake because if you look at any paleolithic dietary study, the amount of fiber that we used to consume would be anywhere from 40 to 130 grams. So we are consuming a lot more resistant starch. And we evolved our bacteria. If we're more bacteria than human cells, we're about we're like 1.2 to 1 bacteria to human cell, and our genome is probably more like 10 to 1 bacteria. So we need to feed bacteria the healthy food to feed ourselves. And so I do think that one of the things that most people are deficient in is not only vitamin D and long-chain omega-3s, but also resistant starch. Yeah, and um, we can get basically resistant starch from, you said, potatoes, beans, also herd... Um green bananas, and uh, yes. what else, uh, jicama. Yep. Yeah, green, green bananas are great. I mean, a healthy swap, the easiest healthy swap is instead of eating a yellow banana, if try eating a green banana. It's way more filling. You can feel how much resistant starch is in there just through the chewing. You Like it's the banana is much harder. And a lot of people, there's that nuance that eating unripened fruit is so much different than eating a ripe piece of fruit. It's much lower in glucose and it's much higher in resistant starch. And I do believe these foods, what a hunter-gatherer would have done is while they were on the hunt, they would have been consuming plant foods. So plant foods was something you could always get. You could rip up a tuber from the ground, you could pick a berry, you could grab a plant. That was something that wasn't hard to get. It was what got us through being able to finally, let's say, kill that large animal. And then we would feast and fast. So we would, you know, eat a diet that was fairly moderate in protein while we were on the hunt and we were exercising a lot and we were consuming mostly plants. And then let's say we would get that kill and then we would eat a very high animal protein diet for those one or two days that we were able to actually hunt down and, and get an elk or something like that. And then we might fast for a couple of days or we might just be eating a moderate plant protein, mainly plant diet until we were able to catch that animal again. So I think there's a cyclical way of eating that's important, high days of high protein eating and days of low protein eating, and then not always consuming a high animal protein diet, but also integrating plants and animal foods on a cyclical type of pattern. Um, so let's maybe a transition um, then as we talk about protein to protein, like what's your take on the amount of protein, the kind of protein that one should uh, consume to optimize their longevity and uh, their nutrition more to live longer instead of, let's say, building muscles necessarily. Yeah, so in the book, we kind of, myself and Jason landed on a 50-50 split. And the more restrictive you get, the less health benefits you're going to get out of a diet in general. Because, uh, you know, there's you have vegans on one end. And again, when you restrict certain food groups you are you are restricting certain nutrients that are only from those food groups. So when you're vegan, it's difficult to get B12, although you can get active B12 from chlorella, which is one of the only plant su substances I know of that actually provides active B12. Spirulina contains B12, but 
85% of it is not an active form that humans can use. Um, and, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have like carnivore and even more restrictive, you have muscle meat carnivore. And so it makes sense too, from an evolutionary perspective of getting half your foods on a plate from plants and half your foods from animals too, because that's what most studies land on is anywhere from 30 to 65% of our intake of food was from plants. So 50-50 split is pretty good, not just from an evolutionary perspective. But if you look at the benefits of animal foods, they have more bioavailability, their nutrients are more bioavailable, their protein is more bioavailable. But then if you look at the benefits of plants, if you give an alkaline diet to patients with kidney disease or patients with osteoporosis, um, either more fruits and vegetables, more sodium bicarbonate, or potassium bicarbonate, increasing the alkalinity of the diet has been shown to improve bone health and kidney function. So there's a benefit where, from an acid-base perspective, um, animal foods contain more sulfur-containing amino acids, which are more acidic, and you can't just breathe out those the acid. Um, it has to go through the kidneys. And so if you're consuming a high animal protein diet, um, your urine pH goes down, which can precipitate you know, issues um, with um, increased risk of kidney stones. And if you look at interstitial pH as well, um, a high animal protein diet lowers the pH and increases the acidity of your interstitial fluids, which can potentially be damaging to all the you know, cells around that interstitial fluid, your organs, um, even though blood pH remains the same. Yeah. So a lot of people don't believe in the, the alkaline theory um, because blood pH remains the same. But, but that's not telling the full story. So I do think there are benefits from an acid-base perspective to balance out animal, you know, acid-producing, high-sulfur-containing animal proteins with the more alkaline proteins from plant foods as well. Um, you know, these days I often hear um, about carnivore diet. Well, I, I see a lot of it on social media, and um, um, I always, you know, want to, like, check, I don't know, their blood work and their overall health and acidity of different systems in the body. Uh, I just, uh, like, I, the idea of carnivore diet might, you know, um, in some ways sound like really, I don't know, maybe healthy or maybe just different, but uh, the reason why I don't believe in it is because no one, like from the data that we have, who lives to like 100 and more years, nobody is on this kind of restrictive diets, uh, diet, and right. most of the centenarians do eat a variety of foods, animal and plants. Um, exactly. So what that that's my basis too, is that first do no harm. Um, and I don't think... Listen, people can, I, there's clearly tons of people who are quote unquote benefiting from a carnivore diet, but is it really the benefit of the carnivore diet or is it just restricting the refined sugars and, and refined carbohydrates? Is, is that driving most of it? And really would be adding certain plant foods um, actually be, be more, more beneficial too? And so, like you said, there, there isn't a single carnivore population that we know of that is a longevity population. So that's one, one point to just question it. Not saying that it can't be potentially healthy, but from the standpoint of 
every single longevity population that we know of consumes both animal foods and plant foods and mo- the majority the vast majority consumes a primarily plant-based diet should also question the carnivore diet the alkaline also acid load of the body should also question the carnivore diet another thing that should question the carnivore diet is where we get our persistent organic pollutants is in animal fats and the only natural way to bind persistent organic pollutants which are accumulating in animal fats is through plant fiber so that's another th- another reason why we should just question eating strictly animal foods because they're now the fats in animal foods are unfortunately contaminated with persistent organic pollutants like dioxin and PCBs which some of them have half lives of 30 years and when you fast you release all those um, dioxins and PCBs in the blood and it, it ha- can damage the brain and there's no real good way for us to get rid of it um, because it just continually cycles in the hepatic bil- um, biliary type of enterohepatic recycling um, and there's virtually no way to get rid of these unless you bind it in the intestinal tract with plant fiber so there's another b- reason why I personally consume plant foods is to bind any type of persistent organic pollutants in the animal fat that I'm consuming. The other reason, too, is that when you cook plant or animal foods, you produce a B6 antagonist. And so a lot of people seem to be actually B6 deficient, but every, but we've always been wondering why. We get a ton of B6 from animal foods. Like, like why would so many people be B6 deficient? And it's probably because when you cook animal and plant foods, you form this B6 antagonist. But if you consume raw plant foods like a like a green banana, you are getting B6 without the B6 antagonist. Um, so unless you're willing to eat a lot of raw animal foods like raw eggs and potentially risk you know you know potential contamination, which I'm really not willing to risk, um, there's another benefit of why potentially people would want to consume plant foods. And and the list could honestly go on and on and on. I could keep naming reasons of why I think people should be consuming plant foods and not go on a carnivore diet. Um, But some people do by eliminating plant foods. Some people don't tolerate a lot of plant foods well. I don't believe that there's not a single plant food out there that someone could integrate where it wouldn't um, have this type of inflammatory response that they – you know, their stomach, uh, they have stomach issues, some people. Um, but if you're at least going to do a carnivore diet, I mean, make sure you're consuming like as much nose to tail and not just consuming muscle meats because muscle meats are low in a lot of minerals like manganese, calcium, mm-hmm. magnesium, copper that you really can only get through organ meats. Yeah. And uh, I personally never understand this, I, I don't know, philosophy or, or something that you gotta like restrict your food supply as much as possible. No, we should thrive for as much variety as possible. So why would you wanna like limit yourself that much unless you really, really have to? Um, yep. uh, and in terms of like more specific guidelines, what amount of protein? You know, this is the question. Like I'm also like ask so so often. Like how many grams of protein should one consume? Um, yeah, the split is like 50-50, protein, um, animal and plant. So what's your take on this, like the amount? Yeah, so so my in general, I believe half about should come from animal foods, half should come from plant foods. If you're on a day that you're doing, let's say, a full body, like lifting weights, um, number one, 
there seems to be benefit by consuming up to 40 grams of protein if you're doing a full body workout um, in regards to muscle protein synthesis, which is different than longevity. But mm-hmm. um, what I think in regards to total intake of protein for a day, if someone's doing a full body um, like weightlifting type of program for that day, would probably be about 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. Um, and up to 2.2 grams per kilogram would probably be, in my opinion, what I do. So, which is basically up to a, a gram of protein per pound of body weight. So, if I weigh 150 pounds and I did a full body um, weightlifting routine that day, I am more than comfortable eating 150 grams of protein, half from plant, half from animal. On days that you are not doing that type of you know, resistance training and you're not, you're just, let's say, you know, doing your average, maybe six, 7,000 steps in a day and you're not like lifting weights, you know, probably, you know, 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight is fine. But then you can have cyclical periods where you fast for an entire day as much as, you know, one day a week where you're getting literally zero grams of protein for 24 hours. So it's not just a daily you need to be consuming mm-hmm. on days that you're not working out 1.2 grams per kilogram body weight. It's also maybe one day a week where you're almost you're consuming basically none in 24 hours. And we would have done that in evolutionary times. We may have gone a full day or two days without eating at all. Um, and then we would have feasted. So... I think we've also lost a cyclical pattern of eating where on days that we exercise a lot, we're consuming, you know, up to 2.2 grams per kilogram body weight of protein. And then on days, one day a week where we're not eating at all, consuming zero grams of protein. Um, and, and this isn't a recommendation because everyone's different. This is just what I do. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I totally agree on like cyclical everything actually you know uh i change my diet my nutrient intake all the time uh and people always ask me like why do you eat you know differently all the time like one day you can eat one meal the other day you can eat like three meals then you don't eat and i'm like but that's how we evolved and how our body is like wired to adapt to things and to like have different requirements every day and um uh, for example you know um i a few months i I've been eating, well, I I was eating um, kind of like higher protein diet. And then for now, I switched to completely plant-based vegan diet for a month because I just felt that I needed needed to give my body a break from all the proteins, fats, and animal fats and proteins. And I feel better, but I know that it's not sustainable, that I'm not going to stay vegan for like um, even another month. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that we kind of lost as society that ability to do things cyclically that, you know, don't just do one thing all the time, but change it when it comes to protein and fasting and feasting. Yeah. The body's smart too. Um, you know, your cravings for certain foods change. So like when I started uh, consuming well, basically about a year ago, I really had this gigantic craving for seafood. I started eating, you know, oysters and clams and wild salmon a bunch. And after a while, after like 
three months of eating a high seafood diet, I, I kind of the cravings for it went away. I did not want any more seafood. And it's probably because I've built up such a high level of omega-3s, my body was probably like, okay, that's enough. Like, we, we have a ton of EPA and DHA in the heart cell and the brain, and it probably down-regulated my hunger and craving for omega-3 rich foods. And so then I went through a period of a lower uh, omega-3 intake. And so that's like, you know, as a hunter-gatherer, too, we would just grab what was ever around. We weren't just consuming constantly a high animal protein or a high seafood diet. We would go through cycles of, okay, we reached a part of, of the forest which was full of plant foods. And then once we passed through and consumed all that, we would have reached maybe a, a range where deer and elk um, were highly populated. And we, we would have consumed them for a while. And it's this cyclical, it's almost like like you're saying, you're a vegan for a month. Well, maybe not a vegan, but you're a very high plant-based diet for a month. Maybe then you're a high seafood person for a month. Maybe then you're a carnivore person. It's like this cyclical pattern where you're building up levels of nutrients from one group and then going to the next group and you know cycling through it. Yeah, and um, I believe that's, I don't know, that's the best way. The only thing that I always stick with is eating the best quality of foods that is available, like, you know, organic, whole foods, the least processed food possible. And that's the only like thing that I stick with no matter what. Um, yes. So let's um, also switch to other substances that help people to promote longevity, like fats, for example. You know, I really loved your book, uh, uh, Super Fuel, uh, and how much detail you put into this book about different kinds of fats and how they differently affect our health. Because, you know, especially in a high-fat community, like, people focus on the amount of fats and almost, like, they don't care what kind of fat that is. And the fats, like, they're so much different between... Uh, how they affect our health. Yeah. And and so many people, so just what you were saying, quality meats, so many people don't want to believe that there's a big difference between grain-fed meat and grass-fed meat. But what they what's interesting is, is they know that eating grains themselves they don't want to do, like consuming refined grains, because they know it's bad for their bodies and their organs. But for some reason, they don't want to believe that that applies to the bodies and the organs and the meat that they're going to be consuming from a, from a grain-fed or grain-finished cow, for example. And, you know, I get it from an omega-3 perspective. There, it, yes, without a doubt, pastured meat is higher in omega-3s. And is slightly lower in omega six, but it's not a huge, huge difference. So that's where I think a lot of people are like, well, for the price, the omega threes, yeah, there are more, but it's not a huge difference. I can just take an omega three supplement. But there's a big difference in other fats and other antioxidants when you consume a pastured meat versus when you consume a grain fed meat. So one of them being CLA or conjugated linoleic acid. You're only going to get CLA or high levels of CLA through animals that are consuming grass. And conjugated linoleic acid through animal sources has been shown to have like anti-cancer benefits, um, antioxidant benefits. It's been shown to have anti-obesity, insulin sensitizing benefits. And so if you're constantly consuming milk from grass-fed cows and pastured meats and pastured eggs, your CLA levels are going to dramatically increase in the body versus grain-fed sources. And that's just one fat. 
if you look at the vitamin E content of pastured meat, it can be up to 10 times higher, which is going to prevent the fats from oxidizing in the meat when you cook it, as well as the cholesterol from oxidizing in the phospholipids and even oxidation in your own body. So vitamin E can be up to 10 times higher and CLA can be up to 10 times higher in pastured meats. Um, and then antioxidant enzymes like superoxide dismutase and catalase are all higher in pastured meats versus grain fed meat. And you know, I can get caught up too in the in not being really good about eating pastured meats, but the research just continually brings me back to I really should try to eat 80% of the time my meats from pastured meats because of all these benefits that I just kind of, you know, covered. Mm-hmm. What uh, what's your take on like antibiotics that are used uh, to produce um meat like conventionally um to factories and also um, hormones, different hormones that cause the ingested, like, uh, do they, are they present in the end uh, product or as, you know, as a lot of people say or, or not? Yeah, I think there are, they are definitely present, whether they're present in clinically relevant amounts is still debated. I personally would say, why would you want to be potentially consuming an you know, protein from an animal who's been injected with growth hormones um, and has been given antibiotics um, because there are studies that show that, you know, that potentially may lead to um, even consuming antibiotics continually may have obesogenic effects, you know, may actually affect your own gut health. When you start messing with your gut health, um, that's, where the barrier from the outside world to the inside world is. You do not want to mess with that barrier because when you break down that barrier, you are potentially leaking endotoxin or LPS into the bloodstream. And why risk it? Why why do that? And maybe on an occasional um, or every now and then, you know, fine, you can't be perfect all the time. But I do think there is, yes, from that perspective that you brought up, I do think there is a clinical difference between the two meats. Yeah, and I mean, I believe so. And that's why for me personally, when I don't have the um, when pastured meat or other products available, I just don't eat, I, I just don't eat any animal products. I just stick to my vegetables. Um, and um, yeah, so fats, uh, let's talk more about the kind of fats that help people to live healthier and longer like what are the healthiest fats out there that people should be eating as often as possible yeah so there's two kinds of omega omega omega-3 fatty acids you have your parent omega-3 which is high in plants called ala or alpha linolenic acid and ala gets converted into other really beneficial omega-3s um, during the process of its elongation to the long chain omega threes, which are found in you know marine life, algae and fish, called EPA and DHA. But through its elongation, there are intermediary omega threes from plants that you get that are also very beneficial that have shown anti cancer benefits in clinical studies. And so, a lot of people are lacking in both omega three from plants, like flax is one of your best sources of plant omega three, chia seed, hemp seed. A lot of people aren't integrating those foods. So I try to include flax and chia 
in I, I eat like lava yogurt two or three times a week, which is basically just a coconut yogurt. It's a plant-based yogurt. It's got 50 billion colony forming units. And when you start throwing chia and flax in there, it allows the probiotics to attach to the resistant starch and fibers in the chia and in the flax, which allows that bacteria to pass you know, undigested and unharmed through the stomach acid and into the colon. So you're taking a probiotic yogurt and using fiber from chia and flax uh, to allow that bacteria to migrate into the resistant starch. So I stir it up and I give it 10 minutes to allow the probiotic to get, you know, protected and, and then consume it that way. And again, that's 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 the healthy sources of plant omega threes, which we used to consume ten times the amount of plant omega threes during evolutionary times than what we do in the Western diet. So it's very deficient. And then, as I had mentioned, the long chain omega threes from like wild salmon or from you know that you can get you know, through some you can get some of it through pastured eggs, not a whole lot. Um, is something that we again used to consume, uh, you know, up to ten times through evolutionary um, periods. We would consume anywhere from generally two grams to up to fourteen grams of EPA and DHA, and we would also get that through consuming um, animal brain. So during during evolutionary times in the African savanna, we were the only uh, animals, let's say, that could access. The, the skull of a kill besides a hyena. So lions don't have the strength to crack open um, the skull to get at um, the brain. And brain is more concentrated in DHA than salmon. It's, uh, you know, 30% more concentrated. And so there are uh, evolutionary dig-up sites through, you know, ancient humans over 2 million years ago in Africa, where we were, our ancient ancestors were surrounded by cracked open animal skulls. And if you think about it, that was like a pretty consistent food source because you were having the big cats do the kills for you. And then there were all these skulls left on the savanna that we could literally just collect and get a high amount of cholesterol and healthy fats by just simply cracking open the skulls. Um, and getting a ton of DHA. And so that's how we got a lot of our quote-unquote marine DHAs is actually through consuming brain. But obviously we're not going to go out and really consume brain anymore, so we can get that through things like you know krill oil um, or wild salmon, things like that. And so you know, omega-3s are, um, especially ALA, is a ketogenic substrate. A lot of people only think of MCTs as ketogenic, but plant omega-3s are very ketogenic, and then you have the long chain omega threes, which actually turn on your own fat burning machinery called, um, you know, beta oxidation in the liver. Mm-hmm. So consuming three to four grams of EPA and DHA allows you to burn your in turns increases beta oxidation by thirty percent, just doing absolutely nothing. Um, excuse me, about twenty percent. And then during exercise, your beta oxidation goes up by about thirty percent um, when you're consuming three to four grams of EPA and DHA per day. Um, and this is how hummingbirds are are able to beat their wings so quickly is because they concentrate their wings with um, with with EPA and DHA, and it allows the cell membrane to be very fluid. So it allows amino acids and glucose and other substances go in and out of the cell very quickly. And so um, that increases muscle protein synthesis um, by consuming high omega three diet as well. So that's why it's very important to either you know what I do. At this point, I've lost my appetite for seafood, so I'm consuming about three grams of a very high-quality Alaskan um, and sardine and anchovy. Um, it's, uh, it's like a combination product. 
um, fish oil, and then also about three to four grams of krill oil per day. Yeah, it's a lot of fish oil. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, uh, what about other fats besides uh, omega, uh, different kinds of omega-3 fatty acids? Uh, what are the other good fats for longevity? Um, yeah, so medium chain fats from coconut, like uh, lauric acid, um, are more ketogenic. Um, coconut also has immune boosting properties as well. Um, and then what's interesting when you're talking about fats, um, you know, healthy fats from things like pastured butter as contains butyric acid, and you can create healthy, uh, healthy fats as well in the colon by consuming resistant starch which is kind of an interesting way that you can be a fat burner by being a fiber fermenter. It's kind of a, something that I, I think is interesting. And then other healthy fats besides the omega-3s is you, there are healthy omega-6 fats, um, particularly through things like evening primrose oil or borage or black currant that are high in, in, in gamma linolenic acid, which is an intermediary omega-6. And actually spirulina is the highest food source of GLA um, as well, which is potentially part of its benefits. So GLA is, again, um, an intermediary omega-6. It gets converted from linoleic acid, which is the parent plant omega-6 you get from nuts and seeds. That gets converted into GLA. And then GLA is converted into DGLA, which then converts into prostaglandin E1, which has all these vasodilating and other benefits. Um, so, you know, that's just another benefit of spirulina is you get this healthy omega-6 that's also lacking in a lot of people's diets called GLA. Okay. Um, and um, I assume olive oil is also good for you. It's just, you know, uh, yeah. you always hear so much about olive oil when people talk about longevity. Yeah, extra virgin olive oil is great to cook with. It's so high in polyphenols that it, um, it doesn't oxidize. It's, it's actually even more stable than coconut oil because of the high polyphenol content. I always cook my meat slathered in, in extra virgin olive oil because it reduces um, not only the advanced glycation end products that will form, but also the heterocyclic amines um, that form as well. So I always, you know, do a nice layer of extra virgin olive oil, and I'll do some some healthy salt, um, like Redmond Real Salt, on, on the meat as well. And um, you know, a lot of herbs and spices can be said by you know, coating your meat in things like uh, rosemary to reduce those heterocyclic amines that can form. Um, yeah, actually, you know, about olive oil, I learned from you that we can cook with olive oil, because, extra virgin olive oil, because so many people think that it's only good for salads. Um, so that's one thing uh, I remember from a lot of your content um, very well. Um, and... Uh, Talking about fats, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, um, do you think there is like a limit on how much fat people should get from their diet? Like, uh, good, assuming they uh, consume good quality fats, and uh, like, what's the amount maybe you recommend or you think is a good amount of fats per day to eat for a person? Yeah, I think I personally think uh, around. I, I personally don't think consuming more than 120 grams of fat, at least for me, is going to do any benefit. Anything over that is probably going to start putting fat on my own body. And so a lot of people get this confused. They think that eating fat and being a fat burner is the same thing as losing fat off the body. 
So yeah, you can be in ketosis and you consuming sticks of butter all the time, but you're not going to be burning your own body fat. You're going to be burning the fat that you're consuming in the butter. So just consuming exogenous forms of fat bombs is is not the approach, the healthy way to do a ketogenic diet. A ketogenic diet really should be targeting high fiber and and probably higher protein food sources and in, in almost limiting. Um, fat bombs. So adding heavy cream to your coffee or adding a half a stick of butter is not the way to burn fat. That That's just, you know, burning exogenous fat. Yeah. And so, you know, I think over 120 grams of fat, I, I very much question if that's going to be beneficial, especially when you're consuming a higher fiber diet and a, and a more a moderate carb intake. You don't want to really go over probably around that amount. I, I function good at about probably 100 grams of fat per day. Um, and what's interesting is there is this problem with saturated fat when you're consuming carbs. There is a difference in long chain saturated fats. So you have to be careful with fats that are coming from dairy. So like, you know, cheese, mm-hmm. milk, butter, when you combine those with carbohydrates, they already have a lower oxidation rate than fats from olive oil or MCTs or omega-3s. They're already a fat that's more likely to be stored. So when you throw carbs on top of it, you got to be really careful of how much fat you're consuming from those sources. So Italians and Mediterranean people seem to be able to get away with more fat because A, they consume more monounsaturated fats like olive oils, olive, and omega-3s, a lot of seafood. They're not consuming high um, saturated fat, long-chain saturated fat foods. Like They don't consume a ton of milk. Um, they don't consume a ton of you know fat on red meat, which is higher in saturated fat as well. And that's why they can get away with eating more carbohydrates. So it also depends. So for me personally, again, the cap would be about 120 grams of fat. And mostly it's going to come from plant sources or seafood or krill oil or olive oil. And it will come to uh, some from pastured eggs um, and some olives or olive oil. And it will come – I do – cut off in general a lot of the fat in meat because it is going to have a lot of those persistent organic pollutants and it will um, also have a lot of saturated fat. When you start combining that with a lot of the plant foods that I'm eating, I just don't think that that's the ideal way we should be consuming fat. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you, you know, especially about the com- the combination of foods part, like... Um, a lot of people, you know, tend to think that any particular food is either good or bad. But a lot of foods actually by themselves are okay. But when you combine them with different foods that are not that that don't combine well together, that's where you get a lot of problems. Like you know, like saturated fats from animal products, and then on top of that, if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, that um, you know, by themselves, they might not cause a lot of problems, but when you combine them together, that's where um, a lot of problems may start. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the last thing I wanted to talk with you about is, well, not actually, two things. First, 
sodium and magnesium. You know, you wrote this amazing book, The Salt Fix, that really got me thinking differently about salt. Before that book, actually, I was on a low-sodium diet. I was on an extremely low-sodium diet. After your, your book, I started to uh, add sodium to my diet, and I actually started to feel much better, especially when it comes to my exercise, and I felt like I didn't need as much food when I started to consume more sodium. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about sodium and then also magnesium and other important electrolyte. Yeah, so salt seems to be like the linchpin for a lot of people's issues that where they're not feeling good, they're fatigued, they're dizzy. Because even though this mineral is high in processed foods, when you start eating clean foods, you're no longer getting the blood you know, that we used to get through when we consumed the whole animal or the interstitial fluid, which is salty. All the salt's been removed, and you're just eating like this piece of this organ or this dry piece of muscle meat. So if you don't add the salt back, you can become quickly, your diet can become very low in sodium. And then when you start adding coffee, which depletes sodium, and you start exercising where you're sweating out salt, you can become deficient in salt very quickly. And so... It's always been a mineral that's been demonized because everyone said it's very high in the diet. Where did we get a lot of salt in the diet during evolutionary times? And I go through the book that we did get a decent amount of salt in the diet regardless. But it's the mineral that can be lost in the body the easily, most easily because you sweat it out. It's the way the body cools off. You don't sweat out a lot of calcium. You don't sweat out a lot of potassium. So you might not be getting a lot in the diet, but you're also not losing a lot in the body. Whereas salt, you may be getting a lot in the diet, but you're losing a lot through the body, either being flushed out through caffeine or coffee or tea um, in the urine or being flushed out through sweat. And so sweating is one of the best things we can do to eliminate toxins, going in the sauna, activating heat shock proteins, um, exercising and sweating out salt. Um, exercise is one of the best things you can do. So fuel that these activities um, that are very healthy for longevity, like exercise, like sauna therapy, um, and uh, eating healthy foods by um, allowing, you know, salt allows people to eat those bitter foods um, that are high in potassium and magnesium, and y- using it, bringing it back to the table that's lacking in so many people's diets or in their bodies is really the, the revelation or the key takeaway um, to fuel healthy activities using salt. Um. And what about, you know, this question uh, pops up probably a lot for you too, Uh, salt and um, high blood pressure or, you know, that salt is uh, not that great for for people who have heart disease or maybe uh, at the risk of getting heart disease. So um, what's your take on that? Like where did it all start and why it might not be exactly the truth? Yeah, so without question, so... 80% 80% of people who have normal blood pressure are not salt sensitive. So only 20% of the population are. That being said, so for most people, right, um, they don't need to worry about salt. But there is certain people who, if they start consuming more salt, their blood pressure will increase dramatically. So you do want to know if you're that person. But then you really want to know why is your blood pressure increasing by consuming you know, a moderate level of salt. I'm not talking about guzzling salt solutions all day just to do it. But if you're eating an average intake of salt and you're feeling better, um, you're consuming four to five grams of sodium, let's say two, around maybe one and three quarters teaspoon or two teaspoons of salt per day, you really shouldn't have a dramatic increase for, for the majority of people. So getting at the culprits of why, which is what I wanted to go through in the salt fix. So 
there are about three main things of why someone would have a, a dramatic response in blood pressure when they up their salt intake. One is they have high insulin levels. They're insulin resistant and they're not the kidneys aren't able to flush salt out of the body because they have high insulin levels. So cut out the refined carbs and sugar and a lot of people will be able to tolerate salt better. So don't blame salt for what the sugar did. Um, so that's one thing to remove to reduce salt sensitivity. Um, the second thing would be high cortisol levels and the third thing would be high aldosterone levels. Um, some people um, have like a benign tumor that increases aldosterone levels in their body and they can either have the tumor removed or they can um, you know, have the aldosterone levels suppressed by taking um, you know, um, certain you know, anti-aldosterone type of medications, um, spironolactone being one of those. Um, but getting at the underlying root cause of why someone isn't able to get rid of excess salt um, is really the key issue. And then some people just are genetically susceptible. Um, and is that maybe 10-point increase in blood pressure harmful if you're also getting a reduction in heart rate, a reduction in aldosterone levels and renin and angiotensin 2, and you're able to exercise better? It, you know, it's not just about blood pressure. Um, so you have to look at the overall surrogate markers and how you're feeling and how your own lifestyle is being improved if you're increasing salt. Um, but you do need to also be aware if it is skyrocketing your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do, what is the daily like recommendation for a salt intake for, I don't know, someone who uh, who is pretty active uh, and uh, who is pretty healthy? Yeah, so I think like, you know, most of the studies show that um, – the, the best survival and the lowest risk of cardiovascular disease is somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 milligrams of sodium per day, which is about like one and a quarter teaspoon to two teaspoons of salt per day. Um, and if you're exercising, the average person is going to lose a half a teaspoon of salt per hour of exercise, and that will go up the hotter uh, climates that you exercise in. Um, so uh, most of the clinical studies show dramatic benefit by consuming a full teaspoon of salt an hour prior to exercising in the heat and washing it down with about 21 ounces of fluid. This allows people to, instead of being able to cycle or you know ride their bike for 40 minutes, they can go about 61 minutes on uh, a bike in the heat when just by consuming that teaspoon of salt. So you're able to, you know, Exercising an extra 21 minutes is, I've never seen a single supplement that would be able to increase someone's exercise um, in, you know, ability to exercise that much longer. So it's very important from that perspective. And it also reduces the risk of heat stroke and, um, you know, passing out uh, and dizziness during exercise as well. So, you know, you know, adding that extra half a teaspoon prior to exercise is not a bad idea. Um and certainly, if you're drinking four cups of coffee per day, um, that can also deplete deplete you of a half a teaspoon of salt. Um, so knowing your salt-depleting activities and, and supplementing those back is important to know. Yeah, you know, I probably first kind of felt the importance of salt when I ran my first marathon in Southeast Asia, and I didn't use any salt and I was on a raw vegan diet back then and uh, I remember after my marathon I didn't even know how I survived it because I was on a really low salt diet uh, but I had like extreme headache and it only stopped when I consumed um, a lot of different raw vegan foods with a lot of salt 
but back then I didn't really understand why I got so much better after eating all these salty snacks, but now I, <laughs> I understand. Right. Um, so salt, uh, what about magnesium? Um, when I work with people, you know, as a nutrition coach, um, um, I always tell them to take magnesium unless they already taken it. So, um, why, why magnesium is in your book and why do you think it's really important for people to get enough of it? Yeah. So there is a salt magnesium connection where when your body's low on salts in order to preserve the sodium, uh, which is a positively charged ion, it will increase the amount of magnesium and calcium you lose in your sweat by tenfold. So if you are low salt, you will sweat out more magnesium and calcium during your exercise and you'll become more depleted in those two nutrients. What will also happen when you're not getting enough salt is the body will start pulling sodium from the bone to maintain normal sodium levels, but it also will pull magnesium and calcium. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is that spikes your blood levels of magnesium and calcium and tricks the body into thinking you're overloaded. And so what will happen is your body will absorb less magnesium on a low-salt diet. And the third thing that happens when you're not getting enough salt is you will increase aldosterone, which kicks out magnesium in the urine. So there's this triple threat to your magnesium status if you're not getting enough salt. So that's important because it's not just about magnesium intake. It's also about your salt status. Um, which will determine your magnesium status. So salt is probably the most important mineral because it controls magnesium, and magnesium controls potassium and calcium. So if you're deficient in salt, you will become deficient in magnesium, and because of that, you will also become deficient in potassium and calcium. Now, there's a second underlying cause of magnesium deficiency, and that's insulin resistance. So insulin resistance prevents the cell from utilizing magnesium, prevents the cell from bringing magnesium in, and it also, the insulin resistance by increasing insulin levels will kick out magnesium in the urine. So you gotta fix insulin sensitivity. And one of the things that I go through in the salt fix is not having enough salt causes insulin resistance because it'll increase insulin levels and allow the kidneys to hold on to more salt. So you, if you're not getting enough salt, you become insulin resistant and the magnesium, the cells aren't able to use magnesium well. So there's a fourth hit to your magnesium status if you're not getting enough salt. Um, and then magnesium in general is important because it is what activates ATP. So magnesium attaches to ATP and that's the only way to activate it. Uh, so you can have all the ATP in the body if you don't have enough magnesium to attach to it and activate it. You're not going to have energy to do any type of function. Um, the other thing is magnesium controls the sodium-potassium ATPase in the cell, which moves sodium and calcium and potassium in and out of the cell, um, which 60% of your um, basal metabolic rate goes into controlling the sodium-potassium ATPase. And so if you don't have enough magnesium, you are going to get buildup of sodium and calcium in the cell, which can calcify arteries and stiffen arteries. Um, so magnesium is your natural calcium channel blocker because of that. And foods are now deficient in magnesium because um, they're refined and the soil is now depleted in magnesium. So plant foods are lower in magnesium as well. Um, so I consume Gerald Steiner water is how I supplement with my magnesium um, because it's a natural way of getting it and it's in ionic form. It's a very bioavailable form of magnesium. Um, and I also consume high magnesium foods, um, beans, dark chocolate, um, and things like that. 
um, to get my magnesium levels up. Uh, and, and so, mm-hmm. what do you, uh, what's the amount of magnesium that you recommend um, people to get from their I food supplements? About four hundred to five hundred milligrams through through diet and and water. Um, some people will benefit dramatically by adding magnesium um, bisglycinate uh, or magnesium citrate to their diet if they have hypertension or heart failure, um, even up to 1,800 milligrams total per day, um, 600 milligrams three times a day um, has been shown to dramatically lower blood pressure in people with hypertension. Uh, so it really depends on the person. But I think trying to get that four to 500 milligrams per day uh, is a good level to try to hit. Yeah, I mean, that's what I hear from a lot of resources. My favorite way is also um, mineral water. That, uh, that um, I get this water, it's from Slovenia, I believe, and it has like uh, 1,500 or so uh, milligram of um, magnesium per one liter. So, Yeah, no, that must be the, well, there's one water called, I think, magnesia. That might be the water that you're talking about, but there is, there are other high you know, underground natural sources of water that are just high in magnesium from the rocks that the water runs through, but also high in calcium. Even San Pellegrino has 50 milligrams of magnesium per liter. Um, Gerald Steiner has 100 milligrams. And then there's some, there's a water called magnesia water, which I think is about 150 milligrams of magnesium per liter, or even up to 200 milligrams of magnesium per liter. Um, and it's a very bioavailable form, like I said, because it's already dissolved in ion, and it's in ionic form being in the liquid. So it's just a, a you know a, a good way to get magnesium. Yeah. Plus, you also get the hydration <laughs> part of it. Um, yeah. And um, the last question that I wanted to discuss is, uh, you know, all these amazing uh, drinks that uh, can help us to increase our lifespan and improve our health, like green tea, coffee, uh, red wine. So uh, what's the uh, kind of like basic science uh, behind drinking those uh, drinks and um, how much of them people should consume to have to feel some health and longevity benefits? Yeah, so coffee, um, if you can get like an organic coffee i i grind organic coffee beans fresh daily um and i I use like a a metal keurig cup uh, so i'm not getting the plastic Uh, and coffee contains something called chlorogenic acid and your gut bacteria will convert that to caffeic acid and then your liver converts that to ferulic acid and ferulic acid levels are higher than caffeic or chlorogenic acid after you consume coffee. And ferulic acid is where we think a lot of the benefits are coming from through many supplements, many plant-based foods, is they increase ferulic acid. Um, and this acid is one of the strongest antioxidants you can consume. It's been shown to improve like ischemic reperfusion injury in animals and reduce, um, you know, uh, certain uh, when you there's animal studies that um, will basically cause Parkinson's uh, disease where they'll induce it with some type of chemical. But if you give, um, you know, coffee or if you give ferulic acid, it will dramatically reduce the harms from that. And so coffee is beneficial. Um, through this mechanism. 
uh, of uh, high f- uh, ferulic acid uh, levels that are formed, and, and this is also high in in bran um, uh, from true whole grains, uh, uh, contains high levels of ferulic acid, and then uh, coffee is also high in ditterpenes, uh, which activate uh, has been shown to activate AMPK, which is the longevity enzyme and the autophagy enzyme. Um, so that's another benefit of consuming uh, coffee. And, and almost all the studies show that consume, consuming moderate amounts of coffee is associated, again, associated with uh, lower risks of type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Parkinson's. Uh, and the caffeine seems to, for the benefits on Parkinson's, seems to be driving most of it through the adenosine receptor inhibition. Um, uh, so there does seem to be some benefits to over uh, decaf coffee where you're getting that there are some benefits with caffeine as well. Um, so that is coffee in a nutshell for um, benefits. And then green tea, uh, unless you're drinking like 10 cups a day like they do in many Asian cultures, which is why green tea is associated with a lot of benefits because it's high in EGCG, which can activate autophagy and seems to activate something called, um, it's basically a senolytic, which is, aging is basically just accumulation of senescent cells. So when the DNA becomes damaged, the cell will either die or become a senescent cell where it secretes pro-inflammatory cytokines. Well, EGCG seems to be able to break down senescent cells, so it's considered a senolytic. Um, And so you can either get that type of, clinical dose by consuming like 10 cups of green tea per day or a catechin enriched green tea which is higher in egcg because it seems you you almost got to hit like um you know three to five hundred milligrams total of catechins maybe 200 milligrams 250 milligrams of egcg to get a clinically significant dose um from, from this molecule. And EGCG has been shown to have numerous anti-cancer effects in animal studies um, and anti-aging effects as well um, in preventing DNA damage. So green tea um, also increases fat burning, as does consuming coffee. It increases um, beta oxidation by about 10 to 20 percent. Uh, it also, both substances um, seem, particularly green tea though, seems to lower blood pressure and improve insulin sensitivity. And clinical studies have shown catechin and rich green tea um, also has been shown to reduce uh, A1C levels. So there's all these benefits of fat burning and insulin sensitivity we, with these drinks. And then the catechins can also bind free iron um, in the body and um, potentially reduce the harms of consuming uh, red meat. So... The best, what would you say for like um, an average person way to get the benefits of green tea? Is it best to, I don't know, consume certain kind of green tea or maybe get supplement instead? Yeah, so I think um, peak tea is a highly, concentra- like highly concentrated in EGCG. Um, it's like a cold crystallized tea. Um, that's probably a good way to, to get it with it clinically relevant doses of EGCG by consuming maybe two or three cups of that. Um, also, you do have to be careful with green tea supplements, but as long as, you know, there seems to, if you go 800 milligrams or less per day, there doesn't seem to be much risk on the liver. If you go above that, the, the catechins, it's almost too much polyphenols and mm-hmm. it, it, there 
case reports that if you go above 800 milligrams total of green tea extract, there can potentially be potential issues with liver. But you know, every now and then I'll take a green tea supplement, an EGCG supplement, um, like 500 milligrams total of catechins per day, um, because a lot of people can't stand the taste of green teas, and I sympathize with that. Um, so I will take a, like an EGCG capsule every now and then. Um, I probably should be better, but I take I take a lot of supplements, so I probably I'm not too worried about EGCG because um, I'm taking other supplements that I believe are going to improve my longevity. Okay. Um, and um, what about red wine? Um, are you a red wine drinker? Do you recommend people to drink red wine um, for longevity? And if so, how much? What kind? Yeah, uh, I think that if you're consuming a very low-sugar organic wine, um, there will be some significant health benefits because it's not just the resveratrol, which is highly bioavailable in red wine, um, but there's the quercetin, as well, which the combination of the two increases its bioavailability, and there's many other flavonoids in red wine um, because you're fermenting red wine with the grape seed and the skin intact, whereas white wine you're not. So you're not getting the flavonoids in the grape skin and in the grape seeds um, with white wine, even though white wine definitely tastes better. Um, you know, three to six ounces of red wine with the largest meal. Uh, has been sh- associated in many Mediterranean cultures um, with lower risk of cardiovascular disease and with longevity. Um, partly, again, too, the, the, the minor amounts of the polyphenols and um, alcohol uh, seem to induce hormesis. So this, you know, this very moderate intake of alcohol um, in women, like three ounces of red wine a day, in men, six ounces, seems to be that optimal dose. I can't recommend people do anything. This is just general, general information. Um, but I think that you know, consuming it with the largest meal of the day has also been shown to reduce blood glucose spikes, um, reduce insulin AUC and blood glucose AUC as well. Um, and they're... It's just another of that high polyphenol drink that is associated with benefit and longevity, and there's a lot of there are some clinical studies showing that um, in humans to support it. Yeah, um, it seems like you know a, a lot of longevity benefits uh, work through hormesis or just by enhancing some um, cellular repair mechanism. Um, and that just helps uh, our overall health and our health span and our longevity through those mechanisms. And I believe that, you know, that's the longevity solution. The book is what it's about to um, improve those repair mechanisms in our cells and uh, also to um, induce that mild stress to promote better adaptation response in that, that eventually will help us to live longer. So I love the book because it was, you know, it's really practical and uh, it, it can be applied to everyday people's life, not really overwhelming people. So thank you for writing it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for all the information that you shared today. Uh, I'm sure people will find a lot of useful information and de- details that uh, uh, maybe they were not able to find in other resources. So thank you for all the, again, research and advice today.
yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share uh, with our listeners? I don't know, maybe an advice or maybe a piece of uh, longevity wisdom? Yeah, I think, you know, if there's something that motivates you to be healthy, um, then it may be one of the most important things to longevity. So, um, you know, for me, you know, what motivates me to exercise um, is, you know, the longevity benefits. So whatever gets you to do a healthier activity, whether it be, you know, you want to live longer to see your grandkids or, you know, it's it, it comes down to what's going to actually drive you to do all these healthy things too. That That's a, a lot of what I think is missing in discussion on health is the piece that can motivate you to actually do these things. So it's finding that that motivation um, is what I would recommend people to look for to actually integrate some of these healthy things that I talk about in the book. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, at the end of the day, if uh, someone doesn't have their big why or their motivation, they will not stick with um, any kind of behaviors that require uh, conscious design or getting out of your way um, doing something. Um, so, yeah, amazing advice. Thank you. Uh, and uh, if people want to um, learn more about your research, about your work, about what you're up to, where should they uh, follow you or where should they go, like maybe social media, where are you the most active? Yeah, so I try to be pretty active on all my three social media accounts. So, you know, Instagram is Dr. James Denek. Yeah, um, and I'm going to link all those so you don't have to spell yeah, them. But. Yeah, so Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh I always post, generally post um, information on a daily basis. Uh, I have a website, drjamesdenick.com, and I also have a YouTube channel. Um, I have to be better about my YouTube channel. I mean, my videos, uh, I only have like a few videos up, but I'll, I'll start putting more content up there. And then if they want to get any of the books, um, uh, just on Amazon, the Sulfix Superfuel or the Longevity Solution, it's all available, and Barnes & Noble's carrying at least two out of the three books. I don't know if the Sulfix is still being carried in Barnes & Noble, but that's an easy way to get a, get a book if they want it. Yeah, and I recommend to all people get all the books because they're amazing, deep in science, and they have they, they have these finer details that you wouldn't find in a lot of other books. Like I, I wasn't able to find, for example, that much information about salt or different kinds of fats and how they differently affect our health. So, um, yeah, and I love the longevity solution amazing books um so yeah again thank you james for joining us today for our conversation and sharing all this information and for all your work of course um i'm sure it helps a lot of people to get healthier and live longer thanks angela appreciate it